Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a topic that has some passionate supporters and opposition, and that is the innocent little non-fungible token, or as we know it, an NFT. And I jokingly call it innocent and little. I know a number of you have very passionate thoughts about this topic. If you aren't familiar at all with the concept of an NFT, we'll allow OpenSea, which we'll come back to, to define it for us. A non-fungible token is a unique digital item with blockchain managed ownership. Examples include collectibles, game items, digital art, event tickets, domain names, and even ownership records for physical assets. In short, as we've seen people discuss this NFT concept, it is a blockchain-enabled receipt signifying something to somebody. And these receipts can be exchanged on a marketplace. And I know a number of you will come into the comments and explain it better than that and say, I'm being too simplistic with this. But I think in order to understand what we're going to talk about today, we have to be pretty simplistic because to be frank, the use case for NFTs in many, many, many aspects that we are currently seeing them being tested in have not yet been proven. And one of those aspects is in the world of video games. So here's a December 3rd, 2021 blog post from Ubisoft. And I know a number of you have strong feelings about Ubisoft itself, but we're only going to be talking about their blockchain vision for purposes of this conversation. They put out this blog post that says, the recent boom of NFTs has led many to think of blockchain, the underlying technology that supports them, as a solution seeking a problem, and sometimes rightfully so. In other words, that these particular market participants, Ubisoft, video game companies, other folks, are trying to attach this technology to something that doesn't have a lot of usefulness to consumers. And in all honesty, I would tend to agree with that. But Ubisoft goes further. They say, yet, blockchain's potential to decentralize virtually any organization and establish uniqueness and ownership of digital content makes it possible for individuals to interact in a trusted manner without the involvement of third parties. Nothing in that sentence would appear to be wrong. It does make it possible, but as many have pointed out, it doesn't appear to be what's happening right now. Instead, we're looking at publishers of things like video games trying to figure out how to centralize control of a decentralized use like the blockchain and coming up with use cases that aren't terribly compelling. But Ubisoft, again, continues. The climate of distrust and disapproval set by early applications of blockchain should not overshadow the latent trend behind the craze. Online, individuals and communities have evolved as co-creators and stakeholders of digital worlds and experiences, now expecting that their content data or time could produce value that they too can benefit from. That making something in a digital environment might be a set of transactions that the creator of that digital asset could otherwise benefit from, even though they're not Ubisoft. They're not publishing a game in and of itself. And that's an attractive concept to people that make digital goods, perform digital services. Ubisoft wants to get in on that for a slightly different reason we'll be talking about as part of this video. But it continues with, we see blockchain as a means of making that possible. And as such, not as a solution to a problem, but rather an evolution of real life possibilities in digital spaces. The blockchain allowing in Ubisoft's world for you to treat digital goods that you create like a physical good and control sales of that in a fashion that could fundamentally, if this was all working as described here in Ubisoft's vision, in a manner to support your livelihood. First and foremost, though, 
Established industry actors need to act as gatekeepers and create the conditions for trust by implementing this technology in safe, familiar environments. We're going to come back to this. This is, in fact, the purpose of this video. Why is Ubisoft continuing to pound on the table about folks not believing that blockchain technology and NFTs themselves are trustworthy? And that's a part of this conversation that is pretty important, especially for artists right now. And that's what flagged this topic at all for me was people coming to me in my DMs and social media, otherwise saying this is a real problem in marketplaces for artists, specifically of art, pictures, things that are easily copied and stolen. And so there have been instances that you've seen, if you've been following this at all, where NFTs are pictures of monkeys or whatever, they're being sold for cryptocurrency. It looks very much like a pyramid scheme or something else. And that has provoked an era of distrust in this technology. Now, it's also important to note that Ubisoft that has this vision, which I actually think is pretty well stated in this statement, is, of course, an established industry actor. And so it's no surprise that such an industry actor would say, well, Folks like us need to act as gatekeepers, right? If there's going to be power distributed here, it should be distributed to us. Not an unusual sentence, not an unusual sentiment for a company like this. And it's not necessarily wrong. It is, of course, self-serving. Secondly, innovation should never come at the expense of environmental considerations. One of the big complaints about NFTs at all, as well as cryptocurrencies, they take a lot of energy to actually affect in the real world to have something that is in existence. You have graphics cards with Bitcoin. You have various other things that cost energy, electricity, and otherwise to make these things happen. And so Ubisoft comes out here and says, we're going to use instead of proof of work, which is more environmentally costly, proof of stake blockchain. Some folks think that they are a little bit more vulnerable, which creates its own set of circumstances. But Ubisoft is trying to get in front of environmental complaints. And then finally, they shift towards a decentralized philosophy means granting players more control over their games. Downplaying this aspect would tremendously reduce the interest of the technology, making it just another gimmick. By introducing uniqueness and ownership in digital environments, blockchain positively shifts the balance of power towards players. And it could. But that first sentence reads like something out of Jerry Maguire. Fewer clients, less money. If we're going to adopt this technology, says Ubisoft in their vision statement, it means granting players more control over their games. And this is somewhat of a static pie. If players get more control, publishers, developers necessarily get less control over those same things. So Ubisoft is talking a relatively good game here, but are they following it up? And that's where courts comes in. You saw this picture on the thumbnail. You've probably heard it if you've been in this space hearing this news at all. But Ubisoft, after putting up that blog post, was one of the first to adopt the NFT concept in their video games, or what they call it, the quartz system in which you can claim your digits, which are like the combination of the asset and the NFT. We're going to be looking at the terms of service here in just a second. Remembering that Ubisoft says that what's important about pursuing this is giving players more control, not costing things from an environmental perspective, and being trustworthy. Decentralization is key for making this attractive at all, says Ubisoft itself. And yet when we actually look at the terms of use here, when we look at what they described these things as four days after that blog post we were just reading, we can see that at best and most generously to Ubisoft, this is effectively an experiment. And it's not an experiment that even rises to the level of meeting its own qualifications for what would be an effective use case for blockchain technology and NFTs. Why? 
Well, we can dive in a little bit. What's important to note here is that this entire concept, especially in the world of video games, is novel. It's new. And so we're going to be looking at these terms of service, as we do here in virtual legality, but we will note that not everything is as clear as it could be, and not in the way that we're used to seeing, where I would point to an ambiguity and say, well, this clearly favors the publisher or whoever's writing these terms and conditions because they want to have the ability to either charge something against somebody or not. This is ambiguity that it lives because the lawyers themselves haven't sorted through all these issues. That's not their fault. This is the nature of a novel kind of contracting solution, but you'll see it with the definitions here. So let's start out. It says Ubisoft Quartz is an online service. So Quartz itself is the service name. It's available at the Quartz web address dedicated to enhancing your gaming experience. Now, this is lawyers being forced to put marketing materials in what is effectively a legal document. That doesn't help define anything for anybody. It's a service that enhances your gaming experience. Okay. It enables you to acquire non-fungible tokens, NFTs, representing in-game cosmetic items and their associated video collectible, the digits. So we've got NFTs. Those are, for purposes of our thought process here, the receipts for in-game stuff, whether that be a Fortnite skin here, it's a helmet, I think it's some leggings and maybe some gloves, via transactions conducted through the Tezos blockchain network. NFTs represent digits, but not quite, as we'll see. That's the description of the court service. There's some eligibility rules. You have to be 18 years old, et cetera, et cetera. Some of these actually have our requirements. I think you can see here before they were all claimed, you had to have 600 hours in Ghost Recon Breakpoint to even claim the Wolf Enhanced Helmet A. So this is also kind of going concurrently with this notion of playing to earn things that have real secondary value and what that can mean for people as Ubisoft explores whether that's something that they want to put into more of their games. It has the claiming sequence here. We're not so interested in how this works. We are interested in how the legalities work. Use of digits, 4.1, play with your digits. And I have to say, I just don't think that's very good for a legal document. Play with your digits sounds... uh, either slightly offensive or just wrong for how this should read as part of a legal review. The digit is intended for consumer enjoyment, use, and consumption only. You represent and warrant that you are not acquiring digits for any other purpose, including but not limited to for speculative and or investment purposes, use as a substitute for currency or medium of exchange, resale or distribution, and then also you're not accidentally acquiring a portion of Ubisoft. And we'll see this language come back at the end of these terms of service. It's also a little bit misrepresentative, right? When you talk about the value of NFTs, when Ubisoft itself talks about the value of NFTs, it talks about potentially having a livelihood with it, potentially getting some amount of money as investment for what you do in these games. Digits are not that. The blog post that we just read about the future of NFTs and blockchain technology is not this. This has terms of service that requires you to say, I'm only going to use it in breakpoint. I'm only using it for fun. I'm not going to think about this accruing in value at all. And that's because of securities laws. We're going to talk about that. But it's important to note that even Ubisoft isn't doing what it says in respect of its vision for the blockchain. You further warrant and covenant that you will not portray digits as an opportunity to gain an economic benefit or profit or as an investment equity or any other ownership or profit sharing interest in Ubisoft, its affiliates, or the game. You promise not to go out on Twitter and respond to this video going up with, you could make so much money off of digits, get my Fox Wolf helmet A1B with serial number 63. You can't do that according to the terms of service that Ubisoft puts out there. So you don't really have that decentralization of ownership 
even with just this first provision. Now, transferring your digits, you can do that. That's what Ubisoft is practicing with here. If you no longer want to play with your digits, you can decide to transfer them to other players through Rarible or Object, which are the only third-party marketplaces authorized by us to date. You acknowledge and agree that you will only be able to transfer your digits to players who meet the eligibility criteria and have connected their crypto wallet to Ubisoft Quartz. Again, talking about decentralization as the vision for potential blockchain technology uses, this is the opposite of that. It has to be connected to our service using our specific blockchains that we've authorized, using wallets that we've authorized and that interface with the chains that we've authorized, et cetera, et cetera. You further acknowledge and agree that we or our designees may take a fee based on the total value of the transaction for each transfer of a digit that you make through any marketplace. Now, of course, Ubisoft is a company, right? They're experimenting with this, not out of the goodness of their hearts, not to allow a vision of blockchain technology that will take all their power away and will give you money, but instead to see exactly how this could work as a business proposition for themselves. There is nothing wrong with that. That is not a knee-jerk reaction that you'll necessarily see on the internet. A lot of people just say, hey, NFTs are just designed to make these companies money and it's not any usefulness for the people playing the games. And they're definitely designed to make the companies money. They're trying to figure out how to make money through this new technology. Whether or not it's useful to players is an entirely different question. And I tend to agree, as you'll see in this video, that they haven't made their use case for that. But this in and of itself isn't wrong. It's just not the vision that they've put forth that I actually like. Continuing, the digits are only available on the Tezos blockchain. You will not be able to transfer your digits to any crypto wallet not compatible with that blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. So they have to be connected to Quartz. It's very centralized. It has to go through Ubisoft. Ubisoft gets its cut. This is not the best example of what blockchain technology could be, even according to Ubisoft itself. Then things get weird. Ownership and license granted. For the purposes of this article, a visual representation means any art, drawing, design, video, or other form of visual representation, and any associated intellectual property rights that may be associated with a given digit, including its in-game representation and the video collectible. So you've got an NFT, you've got a receipt for a digit, but actually seeing that, whatever a digit might mean without its visual representation is a bit unclear, you'll see you don't own that. It says you hereby acknowledge and agree that the NFT is separate from the visual representation. So you'll own the underlying NFT, you won't own the representation of what the digit is that's associated with that NFT. And that makes some amount of sense. Ubisoft doesn't want to give away its assets. And yet, it's a little bit unclear how this all works if you transfer an NFT and you can't transfer the representation of what the NFT represents. Feels a little bit like Inception as we go down this loop. For clarification purposes, you do not become the owner of the visual representation associated with digits that you have acquired. We own the visual representation. Ubisoft Quartz is part of the Ubisoft services we provide to you. You acknowledge that all intellectual property rights and other right title and interest in and to all elements of Ubisoft Quartz, including but not limited to all intellectual property rights on the digits and on the visual representations of the digits are owned by us and or our licensors. So this is where people start to get a little bit agitated when we talk about NFTs. What in the world are you even buying? And the answer to that is nothing. You're buying a little account indicator in a blockchain somewhere that says you own something, but Ubisoft owns the, digit, the digits themselves, the visual representations of those digits, and can't control for how the NFT is actually moved around. Now, they do say, subject to your compliance with these terms, which is important because these terms have some pretty draconian requirements of what blockchain you're going to use, who's eligible to actually hold these things, etc., 
We grant to you a limited, non-exclusive, worldwide, revocable license to access, perform, and display the visual re representation of your digit solely for the following purposes. For your own personal, non-commercial use as part of the game experience, to use in your game, or to otherwise transfer to others. Can't be used as an investment vehicle. This is very important to them. And note also that they describe the license as revocable, presumably for breach of these license terms themselves, this agreement, but they don't actually go so far as to say that so much. Instead, they say such license granted you continues as long as you continue to own the NFT unless otherwise provided in these terms. If at any time you decide to transfer or otherwise dispose of the digit for any reason, the license granted to you with respect to the associated visual representation will end. The rights not expressly granted are reserved to us and our licensors. Again, this is a novel contract. I look at this and I say, okay, does that license to the visual representation transfer with the NFT? Do you enter into a new agreement with the transferee of that NFT? It's clearly centralized to Ubisoft and Quartz and their service, but it's a little bit unclear how the legal, the legalities kind of follow along with moving one of these things around because they haven't been fully vetted yet. This is the kind of stuff that gets buttoned up after there are issues with one or two or more people that are interacting with this license in Ubisoft. Then we get to the kind of standard stuff that we're used to seeing now. Hey, everything here as is. We disclaim all warranties or conditions of any kind. You get no promises from us at all. And further... The digit is intended for consumer enjoyment, use, and consumption only. It is not a security, which it should be noted is a legal conclusion that is not within Ubisoft's purview to actually state here. As defined under the Securities Act of 1933 as amended, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 as amended, the Investment Company Act of 1940 as amended, or under the securities laws of any U.S. state or any other similar regulations of other countries, which is all the laws that apply to this. Now, why is that critical? It's because if you are actually issuing securities of some kind, then you've got registration issues, you've got compliance issues, you've got disclosure issues that Ubisoft wants no part of. But as I just said, Ubisoft isn't the arbiter of what is or isn't a security. Those laws are. So they could say it's not intended as a security. This sentence is actually a little bit too strong. They aren't allowed to say that. And it could potentially be an issue. Why? Because as we talked about here in virtual legality, with respect to other things, other digital assets like land in Earth 2, where we went over those terms of service that got transferred between cryptocurrencies and created their own problems there, the securities laws allow for something called an investment contract to be a security, which would get Ubisoft into some amount of problems. Not legal problems necessarily, except that they have compliance and other costs that they would have to incur. But here is an SEC framework for an analysis of digital assets under the investment contract paradigm. I will link this, of course, in the description of the video. But you'll see here that even the SEC is like, well, we don't know. All this stuff is novel. All this stuff is interesting. And they say both the commission and the federal courts frequently use the investment contract analysis to determine whether unique or novel instruments or arrangements, such as digital assets, are securities subject to the federal securities laws. The U.S. Supreme Court's Howey case, or Howey test, and subsequent case law have found that an investment contract exists when there is three elements. The investment of money in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profits to be derived from the efforts of others. Now, this is a kind of old concept, an investment of money might be something that's exchangeable for essentially investment of time or game energy or whatever that might be, an actual thing of value. Uh, that could be something that comes up again. Common enterprise is probably going to be fulfilled because it's a market controlled by Ubisoft itself. And then with the reasonable expectations of profits to be derived from the efforts of others is where this usually winds up. 
You can look at this article. It says, the main issue in analyzing a digital asset under the Howey test is whether a purchaser has a reasonable expectation of profits or other returns derived from the efforts of others. When a promoter, sponsor, or other third party, each an active participant, provides essential managerial efforts that affect the success of the enterprise and investors reasonably expect to derive profit from those efforts and not their own, then this prong of the test is met. And we don't know, right? Ubisoft is setting up this market. It's very experimental. We don't know what it might look like in the future, but there's all these things that you can take into account, a couple of which caught my eye is when the AP owns or controls ownership of intellectual property rights of the network or digital asset directly or indirectly, we saw all that language where Ubisoft is controlling the underlying asset. You've got the receipt. They've got the asset. They've got the visual representation. They've got all intellectual property rights associated with the digit and the visual representation. So the value accrual is controllable by them. And also when the AP monetizes the value of the digital asset, especially where the digital asset has limited functionality. Here, the digital asset has limited functionality. It can only be transferred in the ways that Ubisoft says. It can only be used within the game itself. And they monetize the transfer process of the secondary market, which means that they have an interest in the value. What is this bullet point all about? Purchasers would reasonably expect the AP to undertake efforts to promote its own interests and enhance the value of the digital asset where they have this control. So if you are looking at this and saying, ah, I should get one of those helmets because Ubisoft's going along with this experiment. They're probably going to continue to do more with it. They want to make money. They are financially incentivized to do so through this process. Then you saying in your terms of service, this isn't a security is not the end of the conversation. And I don't think right now as presented quartz or digits represent a security because they're too small in concept. And Ubisoft really isn't that invested in making them grow. They have all that legal language that is trying to tell you that they shouldn't be thought of as an investment, but it's not a done deal. It's not a kind of concept that you can easily hand wave. If you're going to be using NFTs in a video game context, then quite frankly, you're going to have to worry about investment contracts. You're going to have to worry about where securities are under US securities law. And you're going to try to comply with that to the best of your ability. But we've got a long way to go to see how the SEC is going to respond to these kinds of things, especially if these video game companies start making real money off of secondary markets. Remembering, of course, that the conversations we've had here in virtual legality about things like loot boxes are pretty dependent on the fact that those digital assets can't be exchanged on secondary markets because that's what's preventing loot boxes realistically from being treated as gambling here in the United States and other jurisdictions. So if you start blurring the lines between secondary value characterizations, gambling, securities law, and more, you're probably putting your own company at risk for compliance costs here in the United States. Now, with that all being said, it's important to note that there have been very negative reactions to the use of NFTs in video games, period. Kotaku here reports on Ubisoft essentially getting insanely disliked on their video here, making it unlisted, doing all these kinds of things to say, hey, we don't really want you to think about Quartz right now after this video goes up. They immediately announce that they're working on Splinter Cell, which is a game series they've long left dormant, uh, perhaps for times like this, break in case of emergency with Splinter Cell. And further, that the developers at Ubisoft themselves don't understand the NFT's push. Now, I have to say, the developers are the artists. The developers are putting out the products that consumers want, hopefully. Uh, and making the games themselves. They don't always have to understand exactly how the publisher or the company is intending to monetize these things. 
But I do think it's worth noting that Ubisoft's vision of the blockchain, which I think is pretty good, I think it's a pretty successful kind of mission statement, is not met with everything that we can see with how Quartz is implemented. So right now, I would describe this as effectively the financial folks, the bean counters, looking at this and saying, how can we justify this? How can this make the company money? Let's push out some experimental stuff, see if it works, see if it flies, and then go from there. But the video game journalists, social media on this topic, very, very negative about these things. We saw Stalker 2, who was trying to do an NFT kind of thing with becoming the first meta-human, et cetera, et cetera. Pulls that down, I think our Technica describes here, is less than 36 hours after the announcement. And the thing I would say about this, before we get into why they're so distrusted, is that I do think that the response is a little bit knee-jerk, right? I put out a tweet, same day that all of this came to our attention, says, I don't have quite the same reaction against the concept of blockchain tech helping pave the way to something like a metaverse, which you've seen described by Facebook and others, especially Tim Sweeney and Epic, is allowing various assets to potentially move around different companies and applications. But I don't think the video makes the use case. I don't think Quartz actually makes the case for something that's valuable. So I get people looking at it and saying, I don't see any reason to be invested in this. I don't think this is very useful. You could have these assets move around easily without the blockchain. But I also don't think that's the end of the conversation, right? And this is where people get upset at me on Twitter and the like. And this is me responding to a tweet that's all about how NFTs are always and everywhere a scam. And I said, hey, this is kind of anti-cult. Not sure I've ever seen this. I don't think there's a great use case for them, but I'm wise enough to know I don't know everything. And that's really where my stance is on this. I don't think these companies have at all proved why NFTs will be useful. But at the end of the day, I'm a startup company lawyer. I work with entrepreneurs every day. I work with crazy technology and crazy concepts in software and applications and life sciences, biopharmaceuticals, and all sorts of other stuff. Some of which I would sit here and tell you sound absolutely crazy and will never work and nobody will want to buy it that are hugely successful and they're millionaires uh, within even a few years and others that I think, oh, that's going to definitely work. That's going to make a lot of people money and it just never captures the market in the way that you might otherwise think. So I look at this and I'm somewhat in agreement with the people that say, ah, get that all out of my industry. But I don't know what I don't know. And there could be a use case that makes sense here. Ubisoft paints a picture where if the publishers were willing to work together and give up some of that power and control, which I know a number of you think is impossible, but might happen, I can be an optimist about these things, then there really is a use case for having content creators, people that are otherwise putting value into your game, make some money, potentially make a livelihood out of that process so that publishers and game designers and developers and users are working together and making money in a way that's reasonable for everyone. Is that happening now? Absolutely not. Could it happen in the future? I think it could. And I would be remiss to suggest that everybody should have this massively negative knee-jerk reaction to these kinds of things, even if the use case doesn't seem obvious right now. But that leads us to Ubisoft's vision for the blockchain, emphasizing distrust, disapproval, the fact that they need to be gatekeepers because everybody hates NFTs right now. Why does everybody hate NFTs right now? It's because of art and artists and how people are being treated and defrauded and concepts like that right now, before any of these pie-in-the-sky metaverses or anything else. So let's go back to OpenSea. As we were talking about, OpenSea is the ones that defined an NFT for us at the top of this video, but they are a marketplace for NFTs. They say, NFTs have exciting new properties. They're unique 
provably scarce, tradable, usable across multiple applications. And just like physical goods, you can do whatever you want with them. You could throw them in the trash, gift them to a friend, or go sell them to an open marketplace. And we're proud to be the first and largest marketplace for NFTs. And you can go here, you can see pictures that are sold for a certain amount of Ethereum and people are making money trading these things. And yes, you can get on social media and you can see various people essentially espousing things that look an awful lot like a pyramid scheme, but ostensibly having an NFT receipt to one of these things could be valuable to somebody in some use case. The problem is, as you can probably already guess, is that these are pictures and these are very easily copied and stolen and then put up by people that didn't make them onto an auction site like this one. So every indication that I've gotten from people that ask me to talk about this topic is that infringement is running rampant in this space. And OpenSea, one of the biggest, one of the first NFT markets, came under a bunch of fire very recently. And it's fire I want to talk to you about because they're doing some stuff that makes sense and some stuff that doesn't. So here's the tweet that was brought to my attention uh, from a John Nymeister on Twitter. There is now evidence that OpenSea sends filled forms of copyright infringement to the thieves posting stolen art, including the stolen artist's real name, email, phone number, address, and signature. This is wildly immoral and puts countless artists at risk of doxing. Doc attached. And I saw this picture. And if you're at all familiar with this font type, this is what the copyright office uses. This is definitely the form that a copyright office sample form would take. And if we, in fact, follow this through, we see that that's what OpenSea has effectively said. And here's another Twitter, NFT thefts, that says the following. OpenSea is now rejecting takedown requests sent via their own takedown form on stolen artwork, citing their terms of service as the reason. We've heard from multiple artists who have sent proof of ownership, but OpenSea refused to take the work down. This thread has more info. As part of this new change, OpenSea now requires artists to, to submit sensitive personal information, which OpenSea will forward to the art thieves. OpenSea allows its users to stay anonymous, but victims have to fully dox themselves what would, what would you call that? Blowing up head emoji. And we see another reference here linked in this particular thread. At this point, I consider OpenSea to be actively hostile towards artists. The only way they'll respect my property is if I potentially open myself up for further harassment. So one of the things they're happening here is that they say, please note, if we take action against the seller's collection, we may need to forward this complaint and other complaints to the seller. So they have further details regarding that action. And further, that you need to do something like tell us your phone number and give us a signature, et cetera, et cetera. It is of our opinion that OpenSea is doing this specifically to squash takedown requests from artists. This is clearly too far. OpenSea simply cannot be trusted with your personal information. Do not share it with them. And here's another link. As far as I can tell, the only thing missing is a signature address and phone number. And you see the email that was sent here. As we'll see, this is actually missing quite a few things that the DMCA would require through their takedown notice procedure, such as a statement that by penalty of perjury, I'm authorized to do this. I have a good faith belief, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just the contact information that is missing. And we see OpenSea say what we expected when we saw that form of document. We follow DMCA requirements. So in order to take further action, we will need the additional required information. Here's an example that contains the requirements shown right here. And that is in fact what we would expect. That's the link to the Copyright Office's sample DMCA form. And then NFT thefts 
finishes off, screw it, let's keep going. Wise OpenSea deterring artists from reporting plagiarized art. Removing fraud would be good for their customers, right? Did you know that OpenSea doesn't do refunds nor remuneration? They keep a cut from NFTs they sell, even if it's stolen. So the charge here from this thread is that OpenSea has gone crazy. The DMCA functionality is effectively immoral. It's doxing people. And if you aren't familiar with DMCA takedowns and counter notices and everything else, we're going to be talking about those as part of this video. But it's always been a complaint, a constant refrain, really, that the information that is collected for the takedown notice is something that various service providers have been passing along to the counter notice individuals, those that are accused of stealing the artwork. And we're going to talk about the DMCA and how that happens, why it happens, and also why it shouldn't be happening, why no service provider should necessarily be going through that process and having this particular compromise. But it's also worthwhile to note that when we talk about all this, and there's a lot of legitimately aggrieved artists, things get complicated. These complaints are about the DMCA takedown process, which is totally worthwhile of complaining about, and yet that's effectively the legislative process. You also find yourself in situations like this email where you've got pictures of things like Batgirl and others. And when they say that they're being infringed upon, they note that there's enough variety in the collection's artists to make it incredibly unlikely that they gain the rights from all of them, as well as Batgirl as a character. It is not an official collection from either DC Comics or Disney. And this should frankly be more than enough to halt the sales of the piece in question. You've got a fundamental issue, right? That Batgirl might be drawn by Artist X. That, in fact, in and of itself is very likely an infringement on the DC Comics ownership of the Batgirl character. So you don't, can't necessarily make a DMCA takedown notice that you are the rightful owner of that when you've illegally made a derivative work. And I don't know the situation here with licensing and otherwise, so you could be properly licensed by DC Comics itself. But artists that make these kinds of things that are then kind of two levels removed from infringement have a problem making the claim at all, which is what made the NFT market such a mess, right? And that didn't stop as part of this process. So we have to understand what OpenSea is saying here, why they are asking for this. And in order to understand that, we have to talk about the DMCA itself. So I don't know how many people regularly dive into this. We've certainly done it enough times here in virtual legality, but the DMCA, at least this part, the DMCA is bigger than this, but in respect of takedown notices and copyright infringement, is a safe harbor. It's not a legal requirement. Everybody that you put a notice to could ignore it, but then they could be potentially liable for contributory infringement or some other infringement category that effectively says you helped them infringe. What the law says is that a service provider, here OpenSea, other videos talk about YouTube or Twitch, they shall not be liable for infringement of copyright if they don't have actual knowledge of the infringement, they're not aware of facts or circumstances from which infringing activity is apparent, or upon obtaining such knowledge or awareness, they act expeditiously to remove or disable access to the material. They do not receive a financial benefit directly attributable to the infringing activity, and upon notification of claimed infringement, as we will talk about, they respond expeditiously to removal. So basically what this says is that if you're OpenSea and you don't know that there's infringement happening and you're a big giant marketplace, you aren't described knowledge of everything a user puts up, then you won't be held liable for infringement of copyright effectively if you pull everything down when you get an applicable notice. Now you note B here, you're not supposed to be able to receive a financial benefit directly attributable to the infringing activity in a case where you have the right and ability to control that activity. That might sound like something that would prevent OpenSea from actually using this provision. Chances are it wouldn't based on prior precedent where you really have to have control. But 
it's worth noting that this appears to be OpenSea's entire business model. So unlike some other case law that's on the books on this particular topic, they might be more susceptible to an attack on using the safe harbor at all because they're making their money, their functionality, specifically from moving these various things around. Uh, Unless there's another business model that you know of there, I suspect that they take a cut from the transactions and that's how they keep going. That said, if they get one of these notices, they will be liable for the knowledge that they have of the infringement. But the DMCA actually says what's going to be in this notification, and it matches up, as you might expect it would, with the Copyright Office's actual sample document. It says, to be effective under the subsection, a notification of claimed infringement must be a written communication provided to the designated agent of a service provider. More on that in just a second. That includes a signature of the owner, identification of the work claimed to have been infringed, of the material that is claimed to be infringing, information reasonably sufficient to permit the service provider, OpenSea, to contact the complaining party, such as an address telephone number and, if available, an electronic mail address at which the complaining party may be contacted. So let's take a step back here. This has been read by most for purposes of the safe harbor as we need an address telephone number and an email address. But it's important to note that the actual legal requirement doesn't say that. It's information reasonably sufficient to permit the service provider to contact the complaining party, which I would argue in most instances is done with an email. You don't necessarily need a physical address. You don't necessarily need a telephone number. And remember, you're submitting this to a designated agent. That'll become important in just a second. You also need to have a statement that you have a good faith belief that use of the material in the manner complained of is not authorized by the copyright owner, ostensibly you, its agent or the law, and a statement that the information in the notification is accurate and under penalty of perjury that the complaining party is authorized to act on behalf of the owner of an exclusive right that is allegedly infringed. Now note the exclusive right. Note the problems with Batgirl and derivative works that are probably infringing on their own. But you see that these are the requirements of an effective notification. And if they don't get a notification that looks just like this, then they aren't obligated as having actual knowledge of either circumstances that could lead to infringement or the specific infringement itself. So they're rejecting things that don't look like that sample form. And the lawyers at the company aren't necessarily wrong to reject those claims because they could potentially get in trouble for removing things in violation of their terms of service or other contractual requirements if they are accepting notices that don't look like what the DMCA requires. But there's more to the process than just that. Right? If we continue scrolling down, you've put in that particular submission. You're liable if you lie about what you said. And then there's a second safe harbor. OpenSea, a service provider, shall not be liable for any person for any claim based on the service provider's good faith disabling of access to or removal of material or activity claimed to be infringing, regardless of whether the material or activity is ultimately determined to be infringing. But that safe harbor will not apply with respect to material residing at the direction of a subscriber of the service provider, that's the infringer or alleged infringer in this particular case, on a system or network controlled or operated by or for the service provider that is removed or to which access is disabled by the service provider pursuant to a notice, the kind of which we just talked about, unless the service provider does a few things. So you won't get in trouble for taking stuff down, but this safe harbor won't be applicable to you in respect of a notice from somebody else that asked for the takedown, unless you take reasonable steps to promptly notify the subscriber that you have removed or disabled access to the material. 
And this is where you get OpenSea sending out emails that say we may need to forward your particular claim. B, upon receipt of a counter notification, you promptly provide the person who provided the notification with a copy of the counter notification and inform that person that it will replace on a certain time frame, et cetera, et cetera. We also have videos in this channel that talk about the fact that actually the service providers don't really have to do any of this because this safe harbor isn't terribly useful to them. Chances are their terms of service already allow them to take things down. So very often, big companies don't actually respond to counter notifications the way you might hope. But then when we look at the contents of the counter notification, you see that to be effective under the subsection, a counter notification must be a written communication provided to the service provider's designated agent that includes a physical or electronic signature of the subscriber, identification of the material removed, a statement under penalty of perjury of the good faith belief, and the subscriber's name, address, and telephone number, and a statement that they will submit to the jurisdiction of the federal district court for which their address is located. And that's important because the second counter process here is that the original complainant could sue over this particular issue. So what's important about this whole process is that you can see how a company would say, all right, we're going to collect these notifications. And if we need to, we will send those notifications over in order to respond to A, you take reasonable steps promptly to notify, but it isn't a requirement. In fact, probably runs afoul of certain privacy laws in various jurisdictions about the information that you convey. You don't need to do any of this. Why? Because you've got a designated agent to collect things for you from both sides of this particular equation. If you go and you look at how this all works, you see that there's a designated agent directory that these companies actually have to submit the information to, to collect these documents in both directions. So they are effectively a conduit of communications between the parties. They need enough information to communicate with the complainant and they need enough information to communicate with the alleged infringer, but those can all go through their designated agent. Here for Ozone Networks, the name, the official legal name for OpenSea, we have a legal department operating in New York, New York with a phone number and an email and contact points that would allow them to affect what they are supposed to do in order to get their safe harbor privileges without submitting that information to the other party. So what they've done here isn't necessarily wrong. A number of companies do this. They take this document and they just send it over in order to communicate what's being alleged against the one party. But it is justifiably concerning for people that feel they're getting their stuff stolen, have to submit this information under the DMCA and get no protection from the company who's already saying in email form that they're just going to send it along to the alleged infringer. So this is a function of the DMCA itself, of a law that was passed a long time ago that doesn't really address this circumstance, certainly, NFT markets specifically, but even certain ways that we use the internet today. So I look at this and say, this is a little bit strong. OpenSea isn't necessarily just trying to squash artists from making these kinds of things. There's actually probably an adverse uh, lawyer that's looking at these things and saying, only accept DMCA stuff, send everything we've got to the other side. We want to make darn well sure we wind up in this safe harbor. But it also is justifiably problematic for the people that are involved in this kind of thing. And all of this mess, all of this morass, all of this apparent infringement and fraud and pyramid schemes and people popping into your social media mentions, talking to you about NFTs and Ethereum and Bitcoin and everything else leaves you with the notions that a Ubisoft vision for the blockchain feels very, very hollow, right? So on this particular score, 
I am of two minds. I think this technology could be something in the future. I don't think they've proven that it will be something in the future. I think the Ubisofts of the world and the experiments they are doing to actually pursue this are effectively wrongheaded and putting the worst possible face on what this technology could be, even against their own statements. And I think it's all in circumstances that have been enormously problematic for the people whose real art is being used against their wishes by companies like OpenSea that are probably following the letter of the law, but that are effectively and perhaps correctly being accused of being overly draconian in the way they're enforcing this thing for their own benefit and against the benefit of those that actually made the artwork that they're selling on the marketplace. So NFTs, complicated issue. We're not gonna get any answers as to how this might work in any kind of positive way in the very near term, except that I would ask, if you are watching this, if you are following this in virtual legality, if you like what I do here at this channel, then at least take one step back and admit to yourself that there is a possibility that this kind of technology, blockchain enabled stuff in video games or otherwise could be useful, could be, pro could be fruitful, could be something that benefits our lives, even if it certainly doesn't look like that today. That's been Virtual Legality for today. If you do enjoy this, if you enjoy the value we create, hopefully through content like this, please consider supporting the channel through Patreon or other methods of supporting it listed down below. Otherwise, just subscribing, telling your friends, communicating that this video exists, that we're having these conversations here. Every little bit helps. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.